The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey Rockheads, it's the .NET Rocks Visual Studio 2010 Road Trip with guest Brian Harris, recorded live in Raleigh, North Carolina, Thursday, May 6th, 2010. Carl and Richard are hitting 15 cities in three weeks, recording a new show every day. Follow them in real time online at .netrocks.com slash roadtrip. The .NET Rocks Visual Studio 2010 Road Trip is brought to you by a handful of sponsors, including the following gold sponsors. Telerik. Deliver more than expected. Online at www.telerik.com. Preemptive Solutions, powered by Runtime Intelligence. Online at preemptive.com. And Redgate Software, ingeniously simple tools. Online at red-gate.com. Special support is being provided by the Microsoft Visual Studio team, the Windows Phone 7 team, and the Bing team who developed the Road Trip Tracker application in Silverlight 4. And now, here's Carl and Richard interviewing Brian Harry in Raleigh, North Carolina. Now that's a crowd. That is a noisy bunch. That's You'd a, think we were at Duke University or something. Duke University! <laughs> oh, come on. I saw their basketball championship they, banner on the they're way They're champions. Yeah, come on, you're up for Duke. All right. Uh, Mr. Harry, not a Duke fan? Oh, I'm, I like Duke, but I mean, I, I uh, let's say I, I went to NC State, uh, so okay. I'm, I'm naturally, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sort of naturally inclined to be uh, uh, anything but Duke, but you know, when the ACC does well, I'm happy. Okay. It all well, makes sense. And you were just listening to the voice of Mr. Brian Harry. Hi, Brian. Hi. And uh, introduce yourself to the people. Uh, I'm Brian Harry. Hey. That's good. I like that. <laughs> Thanks. You've been great. We'll see you next time. On uh, I'll give a little bit more. Uh, my name is Brian Harry. Uh, I live here in North Carolina. In fact, I live uh, right near Mebane. I don't know how many of you know where that is. It's out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and uh, I work for Microsoft. Uh, I've been at Microsoft about 15 years. Wow. Um, I did a couple of startups here in Raleigh uh, when I was young, and uh, one of them uh, we built a product called SourceSafe. And that hey, was we a, heard of that. Yeah, a few people have heard of it. Yeah, uh, it was acquired by Microsoft in '94, and I moved out to Redmond to do my duty. 
and uh, stayed about eight years and then moved back here and was gratefully given the opportunity to open an office here. So we've got an office here in RTP, uh, about 70, 75 people. Wow. And we build components of Visual Studio. In fact, the load testing stuff that you're going to demo next, we built. Awesome. Yeah. So now I'm under a lot of pressure to actually get it right. <laughs> uh, for a long time, Microsoft always kept everybody in Redmond. It's kind of amazing. I'm finding out bit by bit that now there's more regional offices. So yeah. everybody here in RTP works on, uh, on I hesitate to call it Team System now because it's got yeah. a new name, right? Yeah, it's now Visual Studio Application Lifecycle Management. Right. Yeah. We're, we're good at long names. Yeah. In fact, the, origin, the, the old Team System name, not many people know it, it was actually Microsoft, or actually I should say Team Foundation Server, which is what right. I worked on, was Microsoft Visual Studio... Uh, team system, team foundation server. Man, just rolls off the tongue. Yeah, yeah I know. We're we're good at that. And Names are our a, thing. Such a great acronym too. It's sort of. <laughs> 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 but I want to jump back to SourceSafe yeah. because, uh, man, what can you say about SourceSafe with the guy who wrote it? <laughs> hey, Anybody want to say anything to Brian about yeah. SourceSafe? That's a lot of hours, man. That's a lot of hours I spent working on SourceSafe, yep. trying to untangle and it just did it. What happened? Six versions. I mean, it was great once, right? Yeah. Just, we, yeah. we got, we got to a point. Projects got so big. <laughs> did well, I say that out loud? <laughs> Jeez. Hey, it's fine. Did I mention, Brian, we have editors? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, when I talk about SourceSafe, I always like to remind people of context. Uh, we built SourceSafe in 1992. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the web browser uh, didn't exist. Yeah. Uh, the internet barely existed yeah, in, in um, universities and that's it yeah right. client server computing really didn't exist novell was the dominant uh server uh company no kidding um and uh we built it uh for you know relatively small modest sized teams of modest complexity it was revolutionary for 1992 yeah, you yeah. think about what existed uh you had rcs secs um uh, a couple derivatives of RCS. You had PVCS, a bunch of very cryptic command line tools. Mm. The vast majority of developers did not use any kind of source code control yes, system. They right. passed floppy disks around yep. to transfer Sneaker their net. source. They didn't have email, most of them. Um, it was revolutionary in the sense that it made version control approachable by everybody. It was easy to use. You could pick it up. You could install it in no time. You could be using it. It was easy to figure out. It didn't get in your way. Um, and, you know, through 92, 93, 94, where we were just building it and making it, you know, adding features, making it more capable, it was, it was incredibly, incredibly popular. Uh, and even, you know, when Microsoft acquired it and we added integration into Visual Studio, it was the first IDE integration mm -hmm. uh, for any version control system. And it was, it just took off like crazy. Yeah. And it rapidly became the most commonly used version control system in the world. And in fact, I, I know that this might surprise most people. We do a lot of surveys to find out what people use. SourceSafe is still just about the most commonly used wow, version wow. control system still. in the world. Still and, today. And it, and it hasn't been revved in a number of years. It has not been revved significantly. Um, we, we really stopped doing significant investment in SourceSafe in 1996. Uh, took a, a hiatus from it there. That was about the time I, I left the SourceSafe team. Mm -hmm. I, I worked on SourceSafe at Microsoft for a couple of years. 
and then uh, decided I'd, you know, I'd been doing it since 92, so I wanted to do something new. And uh, I went to go um, work on this problem, which at the time we thought of uh, the, uh, as a problem of how do we make the Windows API more relevant to developers. Developers mm-hmm. were programming against uh, abstractions over the Windows API. You use the v- VB runtime, or you use the VC runtime, or you use the Java runtime, or you use some layer on top of the Windows API, and not many people were actually using uh, the Win32 API. And we wanted to figure out how it was we made the Windows API more relevant and made our uh, our assets uh, available to a broader range of developers as we as we improved uh, Windows. And uh, that started off as just a, a few of us in the Windows team kind of looking at what that was going to be, and mm-hmm. it and it grew and grew, and it ultimately uh, turned into a, a, a team of about twenty five of us working on a project called Lightning, um, mm-hmm. which became I've heard of that code name. Have you? Yeah. Uh, it became um, the common language runtime, and then that grew into .NET, and it grew and grew and. Uh, by the time I left uh, the .NET team, when I moved back here, uh, I think we had probably about 500 people working on .NET, and mm-hmm. now it's even more than that. So yeah, it's it's vast. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you talk about huge. how big Source Safe is, but the BCL and the CLR, like that's just a vast amount of stuff. It is. We had um, Phil Hack. It was our very first interview on this road trip, and he brought the stats for the compl- the compilation of. Of uh, Studio 2010 as 1.5 million files. Yeah. In also included th- in that is .NET 4.0. The .NET 4.0. Yeah. 200,000 something folders. Mm. Yep. That's just and that's just the, the product source code that right. doesn't count the test source code. The total files in a branch is about five million. So it's really, most of our most of our code is actually test source code. Yeah. That's people that's, don't realize yeah. that we have more testers than we have developers. Yeah. A million and a half. Uh, app source files and 3.5 million test files. That's right. That's spectacular. It's amazing when you said that Visual Source Safe is still the most popular version control system. Do you constantly get emails from people saying, can, can you please, you know, bring this into the future, into .NET and all that stuff? Uh, not often now. Uh, you know, my, my answer would be we did. It's called Team Foundation Server. Right. Uh, in 2002, when I was done with .NET and decided I was going to move back here and was trying to figure out what I was going to work on, um, I, I decided to get back into team development tools because it's something I was always uh, very passionate about. Mm-hmm. And uh, so this idea of Team Foundation Server was created and we really said let's let's sort of draw the best from source safe a, a simple approachable system but let's um let's really target large uh teams with more sophisticated process doing following modern development practices and uh it was really technologically a a, a restart it's based on an entirely different stack it's Based on a three-tier architecture with SQL Server and using web protocols and uh, modern client UI technologies, web web user interfaces, and stuff like that. So uh, it, it was really a, a restart, but we sort of borrowed um, a, a lot of concepts from SourceSafe to try to keep some um, sort of continuity for people coming from SourceSafe that it looks right. and feels familiar, but it's really built for uh, an entirely different class of software development. 
and, and flexible too. I yeah, mean, you I don't pick say. one particular development methodology. I can dial it in any way I want. That's go. correct. It, it's very flexible. You, it, it, we introduced this notion of a, of a development process template where you can define what your development process is, how you work, what the what sort of the personalities on your team are, what the artifacts you track are, how they relate to each other, and uh, so yeah, very flexible. In so that way. what's uh, what's new? In the application lifecycle management story for oh man, Uh, this was a really big release for us. I you know we'd be here till midnight if I tried to tell you everything that was new. (laughs) What's the coolest? Yeah, so I'll tell you about some of the cool stuff. Everybody asks me what's the coolest, and that's really hard to say. Uh, The single biggest investment that we made uh, in this product cycle was on test. Um, We really the first product cycle we did a bunch of investment in development. Uh, and some in project management, a little bit in requirements management, a little bit in test. But our fundamental uh, sort of value proposition in the first release of Team Foundation Server was about transparency. Let's make sure that we track all of the data about your software development process. We can uh, associate everything and allow you to mine that data to learn about your software development process, to track progress, to understand defects, understand their sources, you know, understand everything about the way your team works and your, and your uh, software development goes. And, uh, but it was really developer, very developer centric. And in this release, we said, you know what? As we talk to customers and we look at our own development process, one of the biggest problems that we face is testing. Testing is very expensive. Uh, we also have this problem of, uh, and, and sometimes people, uh, complain that I overemphasize this, but I, I've seen it again and again. This relationship between developers and testers is not very good. What I find, I've seen it in our organization and I see it in a lot of companies that I talk to. Uh, the developers uh, don't respect the testers. They don't think they actually understand what, what they're doing. They file a bunch of bugs that make no sense and they can't reproduce them and they can't fix them. The testers think the developers don't care, that they're just cowboys writing code, don't actually care about whether it works or not. Uh, they get bugs resolved, you know, works on my machine. And, right, yeah. you know, this famous response, well, we're not shipping your machine. <laughs> um, so uh, we really said, you know, let's figure out how we're going to make that a lot better. How do we make it so that developers and testers stop seeing each other as adversaries, but instead see each other as partners working together to produce quality software? And, you know, certainly we've seen a lot of trends over the last 10 years with the advent of uh, unit testing and the agile development methodologies and a lot more focus, continuous integration, mm-hmm. focus on quality early in the process. Uh, but it's that has again all been very developer focused and not very uh, didn't really bring the tester into the equation. So that's sort of the core thing. We did a bunch of cool stuff. We we sort of identified this scenario that we call eliminate the no repro bug, which is how do we make it so that if a tester finds a bug that there's almost a hundred percent certainty that the developer can identify that bug and fix it. So we built a ton of features around that. Uh, so first we built a tool that testers use to do their testing. Um, then we built a bunch of tools for the testers to be able to, um, 
to gather data while they're doing their testing. So you record it too. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So the first example is a uh, video capture. So while the tester is running the test, we're recording everything that they're doing. And when they file a bug, we automatically snap the recording and attach it to the bug that's time indexed by every step that the, that the tester did in the test case. Hmm. So you can jump to a step in the test case and you can watch exactly what they did. Uh, we also built... Um, well, I just want to comment yeah. on that because that seems to eliminate a lot of problems right there. It does. Just because the, com- the communication barrier is laden with egos, you know, kind of language yep. that, that you, you know, you're not being descriptive enough. That's a common problem. And I tell this story every once in a while that I used to work for this company and I got a call at three o'clock in the morning and the guy said... It doesn't work. <laughs> and I said, can you be a little more explicit? It doesn't f***ing work. <laughs> you know? And that's just common. I mean, when you see what they did, yeah. it sort of eliminates a whole discussion that can degenerate quickly. That's it's right. It's a really bad feeling. I mean, often the tester doesn't even realize what it is that they did that caused it to break. Right, yeah. So that's sort of uh, one big step. Uh, the next big step was to do recording at the next layer down. So now we actually record what's going on in the code as the tester's executing their, uh, their test. We literally are recording every function that's called, all the parameters that are passed to those functions, any exceptions that happen, any major events in the system, we capture them. Um, and, and that in and of itself is not novel. There's a variety of technologies out there for recording what's going on in an application. But what's really novel is the developer experience that we built around that. And that is we take all of that recording, and again, it's automatically attached to the bug when the tester files it, and the developer can just double-click on the attachment attached to the bug, and up comes the debugger. It's loaded in the debugger, and uh, I can literally use it to step backwards through the code. Say, oh, how did I get here? Oh, I was called from there. Oh, and those were the parameters that were passed. Well, how did that happen? Let me call, let me step back to there. And you can literally step backwards and forwards through the code. We often use the analogy of a, of a digital video recorder, a DVR, where you can, you know, pause and rewind and fast forward and, and move back and forth <laughs> through the execution of the program to understand where it was that it went wrong. So, yeah, that's huge. And that's IntelliTrace. That's called IntelliTrace. Right. Yeah, that's the feature. Um, and then we did some other stuff. You know, uh, some of them, they're, they, they sound like small things, but they make a huge difference. So, you know, a tester's testing your application, and they filed a bug. Well, where did they get what they're testing? Well, probably off of some build machine somewhere. Right. What's the chance that you have the source that that they built on the build machine like two weeks ago right. that they're testing on your machine right now? Probably not very high. No, not at all. So they file this bug, and you're looking at the code going, I didn't know what the code does. <laughs> and, you know, that's, again, a big source of not repros. You're like, well, yeah, maybe it happened two weeks ago. We probably fixed it since then. Right. Um, and so we said, you know, let's fix that. So now when the um, when the tester runs the application, it records what version of the application that they're running when they file this bug. And when you double-click on the IntelliTrace file, it actually syncs up to the build store, finds out what version of all of the source that went into that build, 
and then syncs up with the team foundation server source code store to pull down that source. So when you say step backwards and it goes to a line of code, it's actually the line of code from the file that was used to create that build two weeks ago. It's not the version you happen to be checked out and making changes on your machine. So just, and I could keep going. I could go on and on. We did a ton of work to really try to improve that interaction between the developer and tester and make sure that every single time a tester files a bug, the developer can fix it. I think you should go on. What do you think? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'd like to hear more. Sure. Uh, So I'm I'm not going to talk too much more about test. Uh, Let me talk about some of the other cool stuff that we've done. Uh, Another thing that we did is we invested a lot in architecture tools in the 2010 release. Um, We... And I remember vividly, oh uh, God, it was probably two years ago, sitting in a conference room talking about what we were going to do with architecture. We decided we wanted to build some general purpose architecture tools. We decided we were going to adopt UML as a modeling, uh, modeling expression of, of our tools. And, uh, we were sort of talking about what was the, what were some of the core problems we wanted to solve. And I, I was sitting with Cameron Skinner, who's, uh, in charge of the architecture tools and we were chatting it over and I, I related to him a story that just drove me nuts. Hmm. In, uh, in TFS 2005, this was the first version of Team Foundation Server. And, you know, we started as most projects start. There were like two of us. And we had a very clear picture of what we wanted to build. And we laid out the architecture and we had modules and layered diagrams and we knew how we wanted the system to be decomposed, uh, so that we had a very clean, crisp architecture. But, we, you know, we had years of implementation work ahead of us. And the team grew and grew and grew from the initial couple of us. Um, and we got, I don't remember, it was probably a year, year and a half into the project. And I was debugging one day, I was debugging the, the, the server, Team Foundation server, and I noticed that system.windows.forms was getting loaded into the server. Huh. Like, That's not right. What? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Why are we loading a GUI DLL into a headless server? That makes no sense. So I, I start tracing it back, trying to figure out what happened, and what happened is somewhere along the way, some developer needed to put up some UI. We had this assembly that was a, a common code assembly. When, when we designed the original architecture, it was intended to be a, a, a common shared code assembly between the server and the client and with some sort of just common logic that they both needed. And um, we somewhere along the way failed to appropriately communicate to new developers as they came onto the team that that was the purpose of this assembly. So, you know, whatever somebody felt like putting in there got put in there. And before you know it, the this sort of pristine, beautiful architecture we had was, you know, a hairball of circular references and, mm. and random stuff. And in fact, TFS 2005 shipped with the server loading system.windows.forms in the DLL because <laughs> we didn't have time to fix it. Right. Uh, it was, you know, by the time a, something like that happens, it becomes so embedded in the system that, you know, it's like pulling a, a, a thread on a sweater. You sure. just start keep pulling and it unravels and unravels and unravels. So it, it took us a couple of years to finally come back and, and wow. fix that. Uh, and I, I was relating this to Cameron and I said, we need to fix this. Like, this is not the first time it's happened. I mean, I've seen this happen in project after project where you start with a very clean picture of the architecture that you want and, 
you know, six months, a year later, what you have is, is a hairball. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so we sort of sketched out this idea while we were sitting there for what we now know of as the layer diagram. And the layer diagram is the ability to design an abstract architecture of your system. Here are the components of my system. Here are the dependencies between them. This is allowed to depend on that. It's not allowed to depend on that. And, um, and then you're able to map the actual source components in your system, the classes, the assemblies, the namespaces, two layers in your architecture. And you can right-click on the architecture diagram and say validate, and it goes out and parses all of your code, checks what calls what, and compares it to the design and flags it if there's an error. It says, ah, this function in this class calls this function in this layer, and it's not allowed to. You need to fix that. Mm. Um, so that was cool. So now we had a sort of a manual way to, to do it. So then we went, um, uh, the next step further and we said, Hey, let's, uh, let's make that part of the build process so that the build process can automatically detect it and flag, you know, build errors if there's a problem. So we did that. And then at the same time, we were building this feature in team foundation server called gated check-in. And I think of gated check-in as the evolution of continuous integration. Continuous integration uh, is a feature where every time you check in somewhere over on that machine, it builds it just to make sure you didn't break anything. Right. I mean, how many times have we checked something in? It worked fine on my machine, but it broke you. Yes. It happens all the time. Right. And, you, and the sooner you can detect that, the easier it is to fix it. That's right. That's right. The sooner you can find it, the easier it is to fix it. So... Uh, continuous integration has been around a while. We shipped it in, in, uh, the 2008 version. Uh, gated check-in is sort of the evolution of that where instead of letting it get checked in and then break the build, you build it and then you check it in only if it passes. So mm. you can now take this architecture validation policy. Uh, you can put it in your build, mark the build as a gated build, and now every time somebody goes to check in, it'll build it, it'll run the architecture validation, and if it has introduced a new dependency that's not allowed in the architecture, send send it back to the developer and tell them to fix it. That sounds great, but you took the shame and humiliation out of continuous integration, <laughs> which is which is where the fun part of it is. Yeah. When you break the build, we get to put the hat on you. Yes. Right? Yeah. We actually had a uh it's funny in uh when I was working on the common language runtime, uh we um I I, I tell a lot of funny stories about uh life back in those days cuz we had Roughly 1,200 developers all working in one branch, and it was a nightmare. Oh, my God. Um, That's amazing, just to think about what that takes. It was awful. <laughs> trying to imagine continuous integration with 1,200. <laughs> I'm trying to imagine lunch. <laughs> it was pretty awful. I mean, we did crazy things. Like, there were periods of the day when no one was allowed to check in because that was the time in which we were trying to get the build to work. It was crazy. But we used to have this shirt that someone had done that was this contorted picture of someone with their head bent around and, you know, kind of in a, yeah. in a place we don't talk about. Yeah. And it was, it, it, you know, the shirt said, you know, I don't remember exactly. It said, kick me. I broke the build or something. And, uh, whenever you broke the build, you had to hang it on your door until somebody else broke the build. Right. Yeah. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, whose rad controls outperform all others. Are you experiencing performance hits when handling millions of records with your Silverlight grid? Have you been frustrated by the amount of XAML code it takes to create a control template? There are so many potential bottlenecks that can drag your app performance. And of course, there's no universal solution for them. The good news is the guys from Telerik understand the complexity of that problem. 
When building RAD controls for Silverlight, they isolate every probable source of performance loss. Then they apply a respective solution. Through UI and data virtualization, data sampling, and content recycling, RAD controls help you deliver unbeatable performance with your Silverlight apps. You can check out Telerik Silverlight Grid handling 50 million cells as a piece of cake or RAD chart working seamlessly with a million records. Just go to Telerik.com slash Silverlight slash performance for details. And hey, don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. They truly make this show possible. So what happens to a team when there is that level, when that level of shame and humiliation is removed from the process? Um, you know, it's, what happens when that level of shame and humiliation is removed? I, mean, I guess you get a lot helpful? less laughs, but. Is it helpful? It is. It helps a lot. I mean, uh, the truth is, let me get, here's some math I run to. She got 1200 developers mm-hmm. and let's just, Assume for a minute that they are really good developers. Yeah. And I, I sort of will roughly sort of hypothetically say a really good developer does something boneheaded about once a year. Personally, I think, I think they do it a lot more often than that, but let's just sort of imagine that a really boneheaded thing happens once a year to every person. And okay, fine. So I've got 1200 developers and about 250 Working, working days. days a year, and that means five really boneheaded things happen every single day, <laughs> and it, it you know it doesn't work. So you know I, you can flog people, you can humiliate people, you can make their lives miserable, but in the end, they're good people trying to do the right thing, and they occasionally make mistakes, and you can only take humiliation so far. So what you have to do is give them the tools to help them do what what you need them to do, right. not humiliate them into doing yeah, what just, you need them to do. And, and I say this in fun, you know, um, but it, it just seems like uh, the, it's easier than to make something that is going to break on your desktop, like the pressure's off, you know yeah. what I mean? Whereas if you know a siren's going to go off and confetti's going to fly through the air and your name <laughs> is going to be up in lights, you know. Check you're, in You're a little more careful about yeah. what you write and build and yeah. compile before you... Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. I think once a team gets to a certain size, it, it's just not practical. Not anymore. practical. Yeah. The confetti's flying all the time. Yeah. Okay. It, it is. It's flying every day. I mean, we, in, in the 2005 product cycle, uh, the beta one to beta two period, as I say, we had like 1200 developers all in the same branch. Uh, the beta one to beta two period was like nine months, 12 months. And at the end of that period, we looked back to see, uh, sort of, did a retrospective on how we did and how, what our quality was like. We looked at builds and uh, every build we go through a, a testing sort of a, a, what people call smoke testing or build verification testing or whatever you want. That's basically a, a level of testing to see whether the build's totally broken or mostly works. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, we call, uh, we, we say if it's, uh, if it's mostly works, we call it self test. And basically that means the test team, it's worth it for the test team to pick it up and try it out because it mostly works. Uh, the, uh, the other designation is called self toast. (laughs) (laughs) We looked between this, in this nine to 12 month period between beta one and beta two, uh, we had two self test builds. Wow. And it's just. And building every few days? Every day. Every every night. We had Uh, two self test builds in that period. 
Huh. And it's just not uh, just, you know, you get to a certain size, it doesn't scale. You I mean, can't do it. It's just a scope of problem. Most projects never end up with 12 That's developers true. on it. It's hard. Yeah. I would argue that it doesn't make sense. It's very tough to justify making tools that are good at that because how many projects are there in the world at any given time that need that? Yeah, you're right. Uh, although it's more than you think. Uh, we have a, actually quite a lot of customers with thousands of developers. In fact, all in the yeah. same branch. <clears throat> No, no, nobody does that anymore, thank God. Uh, but, you know, gated check-in is, you know, I, I would generally say the threshold where I, I think continuous integration works really well mm-hmm. for um, teams of, I don't know, 25 to 50 or less. Once you get over 25 to 50, I think you need to move to, to gated check-in. Mm-hmm. Well, you just get, and build times get so long anyway. It yeah. makes a lot of sense. You never get there. But I, I'm fascinated by this idea of architecture as rules. Yeah, that you're really what the architect's doing is saying. Like I'm, I'm trying to get back to your original scenario sure, there sure. of there should be no UI in the server components, right? Where is that actually something that the architect has to decide at some point, or is that innate in the layer? If this is a server layer, obviously it has no UI component. Uh, we don't currently have uh, layer types, so you do have to say it. You you right. design your layers, and then you say this layer is allowed to have these dependencies. It's not allowed to have these dependencies. Right. So you're explicit about it. Um, we, you know, I think it would make sense, and uh, we did at one point have some sort of prototypical application um, default uh, sets, really. Yeah, default yeah. sets, uh, and templates. I, I don't think we have that right now, but it's something we'd like to get. Uh, and we, we've done a few more things. We did some pattern and anti-pattern stuff. So, for example, you can uh, analyze the code and show circular references and uh, set up rules that say, "Hey, if I have a circular reference, then fail the build." Stuff like that. Yeah. Well, it seemed like the architect's edition didn't sell a lot in, in 2005, 2008 yeah. timeframe that it was only certain size. You only had, you had to get to a certain size where somebody actually had that title. On the same thing with the test edition that you had to get to a certain project side before you, somebody actually wanted the test edition. Well, I, I, yeah, you're right. I, I would describe the problem a little differently maybe a little more harshly. Um, I'm trying to be nice. I, I understand. I went after you with visual source safe right off the bat. So it's I'm, okay. I'm just taking a step back. So uh, what I would say, uh, the problem we had in 2005 and 2008, uh, specifically, with the architect edition was that the architect edition there was was defined for a very narrow problem scope it was defined for the core problem it was trying to tackle was uh, helping communication between the application architect and the operations or or it infrastructure person and it was about and and specifically with service-oriented applications so it was about uh, literally, your your main scenario was the IT operations guy would draw, you know, in the tool, diagram out the infrastructure inside the data center, and the application architect would lay out the application architecture, and then we had this tool that would map the application architecture into the data center architecture and flag anything that was there. It's like, hey, the data center blocks that port. The data center doesn't allow SQL to be accessed from that zone. Turn it on and say, test it all, make sure it works. That's right. And so we ran into a couple of problems. One, it was a very narrow slice and, and not many people needed that particular set of functionality. But even more seriously, we found we couldn't get application, we couldn't get data center architects to draw out their data center right. uh, design in problem. that way. I need your oh. network diagram. Yeah, we don't have one. That's right. <laughs> um, so wow. it, it really was a, a product that I think had some some cool ideas in it, but uh, I don't know if it was ahead of its time, behind its time, or just off the mark. It just was not a compelling 
product. Do you with, think there, that uh, certain protocols in, in hardware would have helped all that uh, for data centers, or are we just communicating over ports and all Yeah, I don't think it was a protocol issue. Um, it really was a cultural issue between the, the p- operations people in the data center and the application people. Hmm. Um, I still think it's an interesting problem to solve, but it was not the right solution. So we went to, instead of this very vertical solution to architecture, we've gone to a horizontal solution to architecture, which is to say, build general purpose architecture tools that work in any application that you want to build and help you, uh, help provide value. With test, we had a different problem, which was we had a, product that we called test, but it was targeted really at developers. Um, mm-hmm, it, yeah. it was based on Visual Studio. Uh, m- most people whose title is tester, um, they, they don't want Visual Studio. They don't want a compiler. They don't want a debugger. They don't want any yeah. of that stuff. Mm-hmm. They don't want a a uh, what a WPF designer, right? Yeah. They they want tools just to help them test. It was overwhelming for them, and they and they look at it and say it's too much. Uh, even you know I I don't want that. So in 2010, we really built a, a tool targeted specifically at testers. It's called Microsoft Test Manager, hmm. and it's not based on Visual Studio. It's a standalone WPF application that's just focused at the functions that a tester needs to do, manage their test cases, um, uh, execute their test cases, uh, review test results, uh, stuff like that. Cool. And at every layer, user interface layer down, they're, they're actually running the application and... Uh, at the UI level? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. able to do all the testing like that. Can so they- we took the developer functions of test and we moved them back into sort of the developer skew and said, you know what? If you're going to be writing code, you're a developer and mm-hmm. that's just going to be the Visual Studio skew. If you're, if you're a tester, you're not writing code, you're testing and let's, you know, let's make that Any separate. test automation tools? Uh, we, we did build some test automation tools. Uh, there's two flavors of them. There's ones for the developer that we call uh, coded UI tests uh, that allow me to, uh, I can record uh, and generate code from a UI test and then hand tweak it to do, you know, funky parameterization and looping and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a version of it for the manual tester as well, who, who really isn't, doesn't want to write a test, but they would like to record sort of monotonous tasks so that mm-hmm. they don't have to keep running through the same sequence right. of steps over and over again. Uh, so we did that for the manual tester as well. I can record the test. I can record what they step through and then they can just say go and it'll fast forward through those steps to get to the point that they want to do something interesting. I can imagine certain scenarios might be nice to have sort of pre-built tests that try to break the inputs. You know, too many characters, bad characters, wasted. Yeah. The wrong kind of clipboard things pasted in there. Yeah, for that kind of thing, we have a, a tool called um, PEX, which is a really cool tool uh, that does uh, what it actually does is it it looks at your binaries, decompiles them, uh, understands every conditional, every branch, every loop, everything in the program, and then works back to the inputs and tries to figure out what inputs exercise each sort of conditional logic in your application mm. and then automatically generate the test cases to, uh, uh, to, to 
exercise each of those branches and that's where you really hit those interesting overflow kinds of uh right. Right. overflow you, kind you, of cases you're basically building automation to try to complete the code coverage yeah to all break of the it, variations really. that's right yeah so i mean that's, that's always the battle right can we uh, you get to 97 percent code coverage you're like what is the piece of code that's tested now where <laughs> yeah. is it what just is give that it to, just give it to my mother she'll break it she'll find there it. you go yeah <laughs> she'll find a way to you know hit the wrong key have you, have you, you must have worked, obviously worked with a lot of testers. Have you done, spent a lot of time in the field looking at different test groups and so forth? Cause I've always had a sense that in the development community, they perceive testers as like failed developers. They're the guys who, they wanted to be developers, didn't quite make it, now they're a tester. And I know I've met guys who love testing. That's yeah. what they like to do. Um, it's, I would, I do spend a lot of time with customers talking about, uh, their development process, about their testers. I find that phenomenon of <clears throat> thinking of testers as failed developers really, um, I, I find it very prevalent at Microsoft. Really? I don't find it most other places. Okay. Um, and it's partly because we have at Microsoft, um, our, we've, we sort of done a, um, an unusual split between development and test, uh, mm-hmm. than most companies do. If you look at, uh, most companies, um, automated tests, uh, are written by their developers and their testers do mostly manual tests. Not a hundred percent, but mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll use some high level scripting languages to do testing, but your testers aren't generally programmers. They don't have CS degrees. They're not programmers. At Microsoft, they are. Our testers are programmers. They have CS degrees. They write automation. We're, you know, 90 or more percent of our overall testing is automated and our, that's what our testers spend most of their time doing. Mm-hmm. So I do see that phenomenon some at Microsoft where that attitude, uh, develops. Um, but as we've really started to interact more with our customers around testing, uh, we've sort of, uh, learned really a, a very different way of thinking about, uh, thinking about that and the way our customers think about it. Interesting. You know, one of the things I've always appreciated about Team System, even though I'm not allowed to call it anymore, is the fact that adding new features, tasks for modification, bugs, it all goes into the same hopper. And now starting to see architecture being yeah. included that way. I mean, but I think the strength has always been the integration and architecture has always been left by itself. Right. So we really starting to see architecture be part of that whole process. Definitely. Definitely. Uh, we got a lot more we can do, but, uh, you know, you'll see, uh, for example, in, uh, in 2010, when you do your architecture diagrams, you do your use cases, um, you can associate, uh, work items with it, requirements with it, uh, and, and then do bi-directional traceability of that stuff through your architecture. You can do some very cool stuff. And you know, there's another angle on this, which I hate to put on this hat, but often I'm a business owner too. Sure. And the thing I'd always love to be able to do is to say that bug cost this many dollars. You know, that feature actually cost this. Yeah. You know, in time and in and in money. And I, and I still don't see it's it's still not an easy thing to do. It's not easy. Uh, we provide first. There's two parts to it. One is having a way to track the information. We do provide you a way to track that kind of information. The harder thing is the rigor to track it accurately. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you really look at uh, 
a lot of the the agile practices, a lot of the agile movement is about people giving up on tracking at that level of detail. Right. They're just saying, you know what, it doesn't work. For example, you know, you look at Scrum as a practice uh, as opposed to Waterfall, right? Waterfall is very much a model where you say, I'm going to design it up front, I'm going to plan how long it takes, and I'm going to uh, I'm going to schedule it out, and then I'm going to execute on it. And and Scrum says, you know what? It's never going to work. Yeah. You, you can plan all you want, and within two weeks, your plans, you know, might as well set it on fire because it makes no sense anymore. So instead, let's not try to predict the future. Let's create a backlog. Let's work in priority order, and let's track how much work we got done. You know, you you cost things in Scrum in uh, in story points, mm-hmm. and story points are this arbitrary number there's in fact uh the the sort of practice is to use fibonacci numbers for story points uh so you know what is that one two three five uh eight you know you just use sort of these arbitrary numbers and what you're doing is not trying to say hey it's this many hours or this many days or this many anything um you're just saying it's this many story points and it's only useful as a relative measure to say oh that thing's about twice as big as that thing right Mm. and then you you just work in priority order in uh, measured sprints, uh, which is sort of time boxed periods of time. And you measure how many story points you get done in a sprint. Right. And if I got 12 story points done last time, then I predict I'm going to get 12 story points done next time. And, and I have found this over and over again when I talk to folks who've gotten serious about using foundation service so forth. It says our estimating was a joke. Yeah. And then nine months later, we had it nailed. Yeah. And it was just the straight feedback of that's, that's how right. long it actually took. That's, that's right. how long that took. Mm. And, and off you went. It's all about learning from experience and, you know, and adjusting rather than trying to, to sort of guess these, uh, you know, these time estimates that you're just, you're just not good at. And every team is different. Every technology is different. It's really best to execute in small, finite chunks and then learn as you go. Just keep learning from every, every turn of the crank. I'm still holding on to that idea that I can get to a dollar per story point. Yeah. (laughs) As, as a, as a numbers guy, for better or worse. I understand. I mean, it is hard. Yeah. It's We've tough found on the tour uh, a lot of Microsoft employees working remotely, you know, yeah. working from home in remote groups and stuff. Uh, we have some tools for, for helping the remote uh, teams. We do. Um, you know, the Team Foundation server is, is all about collaboration of teams. And in fact, when we set out to build Team Foundation server, uh, one of our principles was that we wanted to be a distributed team in order to build it so that we made sure that we were building something that worked well for distributed teams. In fact, at one point, Said the guys that were in Raleigh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> at, at one point. So, you know, I had a, a bunch of people here. Uh, about half the team is here. About half the team is in Redmond. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we also have, uh, in, in, in the early days, we had a group in India. There's maybe another 20 or 30 people in India. We've got about 15 people in China. Uh, we had uh, about three or four people in Fargo, North Dakota. Uh, we had uh, about three or four people in Copenhagen. Uh, we've got a guy in um, in uh, Belfast. Uh, so we sort of had people all over wow, the place. Yeah. And uh, we really, 
made sure that as we built it, it was working for the distributed team. So we made sure that we had the collaboration features, the the tracking features, because you could tell what people were doing. You could tell what they were working on. It was easy to ask questions of people. We built uh, some cool IM integrations that I can real easily say, hey, let's see uh, what Richard's working on. And, mm-hmm. oh, that's what he's working on. I got a question about that. Right click. Hey, Rich, what you working on? And, mm-hmm. you know, he can tell me. And I also found with Team System, like as soon as you see a guy's checked code in for two or three days, He's thrashing. Like, he right. needs help. Go yeah. visit. Yeah, that's right. Swing by. How's it going? Yeah. Usually their hair's standing on end. And there's, <laughs> there's empty Mountain Dew cans all over the place. And they, they're, they're in a thrash, and you sure. got to help them out. Yeah. Challenging to do scrum meetings remotely. Uh, it is. is. Yeah, I found the single biggest impediment to... Um, uh, to remote teams is the audio video component. It's not actually the, you know, the computer technology component. It's the, how do I effectively run a meeting with, you know, you get these single VoIP, uh, single duplex phones and, you know, I sit there in a meeting saying, uh, excuse me, excuse me, while the other room keeps talking, 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 excuse yeah. me. Excuse me. And, you know, I know they can't hear me because right. their mic has shut off the speaker. So you right. don't get that little feedback noise. And I'm like, Oh God, I can sit there 10 minutes trying to break in. And by the time you break in, the you can't even gone. remember what it yeah, was right. you wanted to talk about. And you, you figured out their problem five minutes ago and, and <laughs> yeah. just, they're still going around on it. So I, to me, that's the, been the biggest challenge with distributed teams. And, and that's something we're, we're starting to look at is how can we use development tool technology to help in that kind of collaboration I as well. I instant yeah. messaged a guy who was in the meeting to say, stop talking so I can talk. We do that all the time, yeah. 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 So yeah. Everybody's quiet for a sec, and now the speakerphone kicks in, and you can actually say <laughs> right. something. Yes. Right. It's sad, but... Uh, it is. Yeah, yeah. Sort of an electronic raising my hand Hello. kind of thing. We have a really fancy one that works really well. Now, it's pretty dang expensive. I think it's about $20,000, but this unit is is really awesome it's it sits uh at the end of a table and it's got a camera you know looking back at your table they've got the same thing on the other end a camera looking at their table and then it projects it on the wall where the camera is so it looks like one long table and they're sitting right at the you know the wow. other end of that table and it's life size it's like you know 20 feet by 20 feet so, so you're to scale cool. yeah so it's like to scale you're looking at the person they're sitting there it's a d- full duplex mic it is wow. Really rocking, but it's pretty expensive. And priced accordingly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, that is cool. The other gizmo I've seen that I've only ever seen at Microsoft is the Kinect device, the little, the little arms that sits in the middle of the room. Yeah. And they can't, and when whoever talks, the little head rotates so that, that a camera's aimed at them. Oh, no. The, the one we have is round table. Round table. Um, and it doesn't rotate. It's actually got, uh, I think it's six cameras and then, uh, sort of angled mirrors. So the camera points up and angles the mirror and, and angles out. And then software stitches it together so that it takes a 360 degree view and projects it on the wall. Same. It's really cool. Uh, it works quite well. The, the one issue we've had with that is, um, you often want to look at slides and you've right. got one screen. So you're either, you're, you choose to look at people, you choose to look at slides. And yeah. if you try to look at them at the same time, you're competing for real screen real estate. Yeah. So what we actually have set up in one of our conference rooms now is we have two projection screens, one for the people and one for the slides. Okay. Interesting. This is yeah. I mean, it's not really team system per se, but it's very much how do the you know, yeah. distributed teams. Well, work. that's all part of working on a team. I mean, it is. Everybody's remote. Yeah. These days, um, where do you do you see any more tools coming out, uh, audio visual wise, that are going to plug into team system to help that uh, 
to help do virtual scrums? Like, could we, should we integrate OCS into TeamSuite? Yeah, it, we are. We have done some through, uh, um, you know, through instant messaging and some meeting starting launching stuff. We haven't done deep integration there. I think uh, someday, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, we are looking at doing some collaborative, uh, you know, we talk about doing a, a, a scrum. You want to do a scrum and you've got a distributed team. We're talking about doing some uh, collaborative work around TFS where I can have like a shared task board and yeah. uh, we can work together and have all of our work show up and we can each be sort of tweaking our work and taking notes together in a, in a collaborative online fashion. Oh, that's great. That's cool. Well, we're uh, just about out of time. So I'd like to thank uh, Brian Harry. Give him a big round of applause. Thanks, Brian. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rock! .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website, at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm